You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So it goes a little further back even than when I first mentioned it to you. I was thinking about it a bit more and I realized that it goes back to my earliest time in science, which was, uh, well, when I got serious about science, studying it as an undergraduate. Uh, and then I, after undergrad, I was a, a high school chemistry teacher for about five years. And I really operated in that world of biochemistry and chemistry for quite a while, thinking about things at a, at a very small scale. And I really enjoyed it. And I always tried to get my students to sort of think about how the the things that we can't see, even smaller than microscopic things, really drive the way the world works. And the fact that you can sort of explain lots of what's happening by thinking about the molecular events or even the, the physics of things, like the laws of thermodynamics should explain just about everything in the universe, I guess. Um, and I remember when I first started studying aging and people in the field would talk a lot about the hallmarks of aging. I remember thinking, well, gosh, can't you simplify everything to the laws of thermodynamics? And can't we understand it that way? And, and if that's the case, then it, it should actually be an easy question. We should just be able to figure out what the sort of the weakest link is or, or um, what might unravel first in terms of how the universe works in our cells and in our bodies. And, and that that should be the proximal cause of aging, the first thing that happens that causes everything else to unravel. And that was, of course, naive because it's much more complicated than that. So um, I, what I like to think, though, is that with uh, what we've been doing in the lab, we've at least been getting a little bit closer to something that might be sort of an upstream hallmark or cause of aging. And while I don't think I'm ever going to sort of discover the, the thermodynamic-based cause of aging upstream of everything, I do think that there's some utility in, in sort of thinking that way. If you're a longtime listener of our show, you probably remember our second ever episode last year when we talked with Dr. Tom LaRocca about the difference between our life in total years, aka our lifespan, versus the number of years that we live free from the burden of chronic disease known as HealthSpan. Dr. LaRocca is back today to tell us about a new study from his lab that is investigating repetitive elements in the genome as biomarkers for aging. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Thank you so much for coming back on and doing this again. I know it's the second time. It's been a while since we've had you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I listen to podcasts often in which they have repeat guests, and it's always a sign that the guest was a good one. And so I treat this <laughs> as, an, as an honor, genuinely. Thank you. It, it <laughs> is. You should treat it as an honor. You you did have a great episode about oh, the biology of health span. So go back yeah. and listen to that one if anybody's 
hasn't listened to it yet. So what are what are you calling this study? I don't know what to name this study when I've talked to people about it. <laughs> yeah, we, we just recently affectionately named it the bioaging study in our lab. Okay. Just shortened version of biological aging. Okay. So the bioaging study. And my understanding, it's based, again, on some of the work you've done in repetitive elements. And so I want to review, go go way back, um, and talk about what are repetitive elements and what is the connection to aging. Right. So, and, and we discussed some of this the, the last time, but the, the brief version of it is that Repetitive elements are, that term is referring to repetitive sequences in the human genome uh, that have for quite a long time really been ignored in terms of what they do at the biological level and in the context of health. So it turns out that more than 50% of the human genome is composed of repetitive elements. And they're exactly what they sound like. They're these sequences that repeat throughout the genome over and over and over. And many of them have virus-like origins. Um, and they've accumulated in the genome for various reasons, sometimes via viruses over millions or billions of years. And they typically, because of that, should be suppressed. So the cells typically like to, and I'm anthropomorphizing cells here, but they like to keep their repetitive elements silent because many of them have this kind of virus-like signature to them. But, but what we've been finding is that over the course of the lifespan in multiple organisms and multiple tissues, that these repetitive DNA sequences seem to become active, no longer suppressed. And the readout of that is that they're being transcribed from DNA into RNA. So we see a cellular accumulation of repetitive RNAs coming from these DNA, repetitive DNA sequences. And we think that's bad. We're not the only people that think this. So uh, the easiest way to think about that is that if they do look like viruses or the signatures of viruses, then what do cells do when they see a virus or have a virus in, within them? And the, the answer is they turn on an inflammatory response to, to fight the virus. And we know that inflammation is something that tends to creep up and increase as we age. So um, we think that that might be the connection, that these repetitive sequences are becoming activated. So we have things that look like viruses, genomic sequences that look like viruses in the cells. They're really our own genomic sequences, which is the interesting twist on it. But the cells, to them, they, they sort of look like viral sequences. And so they mount an inflammatory response. And that's why we get inflammation as we age or one of the reasons that we get inflammation as we age, at least. Right. And you you may not know the answer to this one, but I'm assuming, you know, why they become active with age has something to do with these various hallmarks of aging in the sense of like, maybe there's some altered cell-to-cell -cell communication going on or some kind of genomic instability that even causes them to come active again. Yes, and we, we don't know the answer to that. It does get a little bit back to my thermodynamics story and uh, the classic chicken or egg type of question. So there are all these hallmarks of aging that you know of um, and people have talked about on the podcast before, and they're all very interrelated. 
it's very difficult to disentangle which one comes first. Uh, I suspect that repetitive element activation may be a very upstream hallmark of aging in that it can lead to some of the other hallmarks of aging uh, like altered intracellular communication or like inflammation, like I mentioned, um, and, and oxidative stress, other, other uh, typical things that people think about as hallmarks of aging. So they're bad. We've established that they're bad. It's not good that they become active as we get older. Mm -hmm. And so let's go back to this bioaging study then that you're about to get started with. What is the concept behind it? What are you going to be doing um, to target REs and see what happens? Sure. So we are trying to understand exactly why or some of the reasons why repetitive elements may become activated in humans as we age. And we're especially interested in that question in the context of one of the other hallmarks of aging, which is cellular senescence. And so cellular senescence is a very important hallmark of aging. There are some people who are very senescence-centric. They think it's perhaps the most important, and you can kind of connect the dots between senescence and many of the other hallmarks of aging. But really why exactly it happens is not completely understood. And there are some reports out there showing that senescent cells, I think this is pretty well established actually, senescent cells have increased activation of repetitive elements. Um, but that doesn't necessarily get at this chicken or the egg kind of question again. So you know, one way to think about that is that the senescent cells, when cells become senescent, perhaps there's an unleashing of their repetitive elements or an activation of their repetitive elements. But an alternative possibility, and I, and I think this is what our data point to, is that the repetitive elements may become activated before cells become senescent, and then that may actually trigger senescence. And as I mentioned, I do think that our data at least somewhat indicate that in that we see increases in repetitive element activation much earlier in the lifespan than you would expect to observe senescence. So we see this very progressive increase in activation all across the lifespan, even in very young age. Um, at, at very young ages in humans and in mice too, um, and in C. elegans, a tiny nematode worm. So, so to me, that suggests that it might be happening upstream of other classic hallmarks of aging like senescence, <clears throat> and that the senescence association might actually be a cause and effect relationship in which the repetitive element activation is the cause of the senescence instead of vice versa. So, so to get back to your question, finally, we are trying to disentangle this a little bit um, by studying younger and older adults. We're bringing people into the lab and measuring a lot of basic things that you might uh, get measured or have measured at a doctor's office, blood pressure, uh, taking blood samples for measuring blood glucose levels, but then also a variety of measurements that reflect health in terms of function, so cognitive function, 
motor function, which is things like strength and balance, just so that we can get a really accurate picture of how healthy the people that we're studying are. So, you know, within an older population or a younger population, some folks um, might have similar blood pressures or their ages might be similar, but then they may actually present with higher or lower levels of cognitive function or strength and balance or something. And in general, we like those functions to be nice and high or healthy so that um, we can at least suspect that, that those folks are likely to have a, an extended health span. And so, so we are bringing folks like that into the lab, measuring a variety of things that we think reflect their health and, and their health span. And then what we're doing is what we would call a sort of a multiomics analysis in that we are taking blood samples from which we can isolate DNA and RNA and then even a variety of proteins too, so that we can use those as a, a window um, to investigate these repetitive elements that we're interested in and measure how many repetitive elements are activated, um, what might be explaining why they're activated at the genomic DNA level, and then what the consequences of those events might be by measuring markers of senescence in the, in the cell samples that we um, that we isolate. And then the final thing I'll say is that uh, in order to try to piece apart the cause and effect question that I've been talking about a bunch here, we also are studying older habitually exercising adults. And so in that population, we know we've, we've shown and reported in a couple of recent papers that those folks have less activation of their repetitive sequences and we know that they also have less cellular senescence. A number of other labs have reported that. And so that's one kind of litmus test way for us to confirm that these um, events are tracking in the directions that we would expect them to. And the, the last part of that is that we are taking, in addition to all of these biological samples that we're taking, we are isolating the cells so that we can grow them in the lab outside of the people from whom we've isolated them and then treat them with or without compounds that should either cause senescence or inhibit repetitive element activation so that we can actually see whether folks who have higher levels of repetitive element activation are more likely or whether their cells are more likely or more predisposed to become senescent versus folks who have lower baseline levels of repetitive element activation, if that makes sense. Yeah. So let me check my understanding a little bit because we, yeah, said, a a lot of <laughs> we said a lot of a lot of stuff in the last like five minutes or so. So I don't, so not necessarily your studies, but you said there have been studies that have established that senescent cells secrete some of these r repetitive elements. Is that correct? Yes, uh, the, the secretion. I probably, if I did say that, I probably shouldn't have. But they, um, in senescent cells, repetitive elements are activated. Activated. Okay. And so, can we expand on, you know, why is cell senescence a bad thing? What does it cause? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a great point. So, like I said, uh, cell senescence is arguably one of the most central hallmarks of aging in that it can be linked with many of the other hallmarks of aging. 
So senescent cells, there's, there's generally two routes to becoming a senescent cell. One is that as cells replicate, which happens repeatedly as we're aging, cells are replicating, replicating, replicating. Eventually, <clears throat> they sort of run out of steam. And that's, that's more technical than that in terms of what's going on at the genomic level. Uh, but their telomeres shorten enough to the point where they can't replicate or won't replicate anymore. And so they become quiescent. They stop replicating and they cease to function like they normally would. So there's a variety of morphological changes. They typically look a little blobbier than your average cell in whatever tissue they're in. Um, they stop doing their normal jobs. And not only do they stop doing their normal jobs, but they also, for whatever reason, um, start secreting pro-inflammatory molecules. People talk about the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, the SASP. The other way to get to the SASP is not via repeated replications, but uh, via stress. And people talk about stress-induced premature senescence. So when you expose cells to high levels of glucose, for example, or um, free radical stress, all sorts of other things, <clears throat> at, at exceedingly high levels, they will transition from their normal state into a senescent state that looks very similar to one that you might get to via lots of repeated replication. And again, those cells are just not doing their normal jobs anymore in the tissues that they're in, and they are generally pumping out things that cause inflammation. So they contribute to inflammation with aging. Yeah. And just to emphasize, it's a normal process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's a driver of aging. And, and again, this is why, you know, it's just why we age. <laughs> it's yeah. one of the many reasons. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, like with many things, in biology, it's complicated too, right? So back to my, my my naive assumption that I could figure things out based on the laws of thermodynamics, which I cannot. Um, cell senescence is it's very easy to think about it as being a bad thing, but the reality is that it's it's actually an important um, stress and protective response in some scenarios because you don't necessarily want uncontrolled cellular repl replication. The other word for that is cancer, right? So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, we just had a really great episode with um, Dr. James DeGregori down at CU mm. Anschutz, yeah, where he talked about the link between cancer and aging. So it was all mm. about these older cells versus younger cells, and it was really fascinating. Yeah, James, James is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and so, okay, so again, just check my understanding. So mm -hmm. that's the importance of cell senescence. Um, more repetitive elements are activated when senescence is going on. And so you're looking at young people versus older people to, to kind of get a sense of when does it go wrong and what exactly is happening? Yes, um, a little bit. I'll, I'll expand on that. So, so we're pretty confident, or, or we do, we know already that in the young people versus the older people, uh, that there will be more repetitive element activation in the older people. We are interested in dissecting that temporarily a little bit, in that we're we're trying to get some folks who are um, not in the much older age range, but also in the middle age to older age range so that we can see if there's a, you know, if there's a, um, a how, how this sort of unfolds across the lifespan a little bit. 
but by and large, our study is designed to be intentionally cross-sectional. So it's mostly just young folks versus older folks, which sort of simplifies the analyses for us. But what we're really doing, like I mentioned, is trying to use that as a framework for, for looking at what other events are happening at the cellular or genomic level at the same time as this repetitive element activation that we know is present that might explain the repetitive element activation. And so nobody knows exactly why repetitive elements become activated with aging. There's probably a, a whole host of reasons, but one of the most likely scenarios is that, and I sort of hinted at this before, is that uh, cells typically are repressing or suppressing the activation of these repetitive sequences. And there's a bunch of different ways that that can happen. One is via, so the repetitive sequences are DNA sequences. And for DNA to turn into RNA, which is the activation that I keep talking about, they need to get transcribed. And there are multiple ways that cells can um, prevent transcription of sequences like repetitive sequences or even genes. Uh, one of them is by what we call chromatinization. So chromatin is a series of proteins that different kinds of proteins that help to give the genome three-dimensional structure and let it fold up on itself so that genes or repetitive sequences are more or less accessible for transcription into RNA. Uh, the other is via um, methylation, which is, people talk about epigenetics, and epigenetic dysregulation is actually one of the hallmarks of aging, in fact. So um, when you methylate, meaning add in a methyl group, to a, a gene or part of DNA, it typically, and this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but typically it, that's associated with inhibiting activation of that gene or repetitive element. And so what we're doing, like I mentioned, is collecting samples so that we can look at things like that at the same time or in parallel with um, measuring repetitive elements. So by getting DNA samples, we can sequence the DNA and look for methylation patterns. And by getting RNA samples, we can sequence the RNA and look for RNA patterns. And what we can do is look to see whether there is less, our prediction would be that on repetitive elements that are increasing with aging, there might be less methylation on those elements in the DNA, for example. And that would explain why we see more RNA from them. And if we're right, we might expect some of that to be reversed in the older exercising folks and for the senescence signatures that we measure to sort of follow the same pattern. Right. Yep. That's exactly where I was going to go next is to talk about just the importance of those methylated regions. So mm. it really sounds like it comes down to, you know, they're the key to this activation. And like you mm -hmm. just said, if there's more, if there's more of this methylation, then there's, you know, it's more silenced. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not going to be as activated. So I assume, like you just said, you would see that and people who are exercising more and possibly people who are younger. That's right. Yep. Awesome. Good. I listened and I got it. So that's great. Okay, great. <laughs> so this is a lot of high level jargon that we're going through right now to talk about this story. And I wonder if we can, or talk about this study. And so I wonder if we can tie it up in a bow to discuss like the greater significance of what you're getting at by doing this. So, mm -hmm. so this is where we bring in your health span focus 
and looking at biomarkers of aging. So can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, all of this is pretty technical stuff, as you say, um, and apologies for all the jargon. <laughs> but, no, no, we can't talk about this without talking about the jargon. So it's okay. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, we, we do try to really keep the focus on health span. And at the end of the day, the reason that we become so interested in this is that so we know as we age that most of our physiological functions tend to decline. And if you tr try to trace back the causes of those declines, one of the most proximal biological processes that kind of seems to cause declines is inflammation. And people even use the term inflammaging because it just seems that chronic low-grade inflammation is kind of linked with everything that goes bad as we get older. But again, nobody really knows what the exact upstream causes of inflammation are. And so we think that uh, repetitive element activation could be lying upstream of inflammation, and that could be one of the causes of declining health as we age. Did I answer that question? I think you did, but also just okay. the biomarker piece of this Again, this was the oh. tie that I made the last time we, you and I had a, a podcast discussion, which is, you know, you're looking for things that are measurable that hopefully one day in a, in a personalized medicine future, we'd be able to measure this in someone who's like coming into the clinic. Right, right, right. I did not answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried, I tried okay. to, no, I tried to, I tried to simplify some of what I had already said, but I didn't back it up enough to the biomarker point, which I think is very important. And that is that people are very interested in this concept of multiple ideas, but one that many people talk about is um, precision medicine or personalized medicine. And in the context of aging, that's tricky because we don't exactly know how to measure where you are, where any one person is on the health span curve. Are you doing pretty well for your age? Are you not doing so hot and you sort of need to work on things? And there's a lot of interest in biomarkers uh, that, that would be robust and reproducible and easily measured, say, in a doctor's office so that you know, after age 45, maybe I go in and every five years at my annual checkup, they take a blood sample and measure something like perhaps methylation that can tell me how I'm doing in terms of my biological aging trajectory. Am I right on target? Am I healthier than my age and years would, or younger than my age and years would suggest health-wise at, at, at the cellular level? So we think that repetitive element activation could be really valuable in that context. And that's because what we generally find is that repetitive elements, for the most part, almost all of them tend to increase in activation across the lifespan. So it's, it's sort of unidirectional. And that is in contrast to other biomarkers of aging like methylation. And I don't mean to get confusing here because I've talked about methylation in, in this same study a whole bunch, but uh, methylation can happen in many places throughout the genome. <clears throat> and um, 
some methylation sites become more methylated with aging, some become less methylated with aging, and it's very complicated. But over the last decade or so, there have been a lot of folks who are very interested in using methylation patterns to develop algorithms that can predict your biological age. And the idea, at least initially, was that maybe this would be a good biomarker of aging in terms of telling folks how they're doing and in their trajectory of aging. But I, th- I think most people would agree that this is, it's, it may be still a promising field, but it's, it seems like it's much more complicated than we thought originally. And the methylation clocks or biomarkers that are out there are A, very complicated, B, very expensive, C, quite far from something that you would have done routinely in the doctor's office. So again, in contrast to that, because the the trajectory or the direction in which repetitive elements tend to go with aging is sort of unidirectional, it's just upwards, we think it might be much simpler to measure. There's also many fewer of them. There, there are many of them throughout the genome, but by definition, they're repetitive. So really there's, depending on who you ask, there's a couple thousand um, that you can measure. Whereas with methylation, there's you know millions or billions of methylation sites that could be measured. And so, so our to make it kind of come to some kind of conclusion here. So our concept is that if we could figure out which repetitive elements really matter the most, maybe there's just a few of them or a handful that reflect all the others too and are reproducible across different studies and reflect health span, then maybe we could develop a very simple test that might be something that could be in the doctor's office 10 or 20 years from now uh, to tell people how they're doing in terms of their biological aging trajectory. Yeah, I was, you took again, right where I was going to go with, you know, is this similar to these epigenetic clocks that we're hearing? There's a new Mm -hmm. one coming out all the time. The -hmm. last one I read about was called I-Age, which stood for immunological age. I think that was out of Stanford, maybe. Mm -hmm. I could be getting that wrong. I'll I'll double check that before this publishes. But same same concept, just like taking blood samples from people and measuring. I don't remember what molecule they were centering on, but mm-hmm. it was definitely mm-hmm. not REs because I would remember that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know you're right. They, they're always coming out with a new one. It seems like every other month or so. And again, I think there's there's a lot of potential value there. These are very important studies for people to be doing, but. Um, it has the the idea has been around for a while, and from my perspective, at least, nothing's made it into um, translation quite yet. And another example would be telomeres. I mean, people have been have known about those for quite a while, and it's been pretty clear that they shorten with age. And they're at least early on. I think there was some interest in this idea that maybe we would all have our telomere length measured routinely in the doctor's office, but for the most part, nobody's doing that these days because it's turned out that that story is more complicated than, than we realized and they don't always shorten or lengthen as much as you think they might and, or they're not responsive to health span inducing interventions. Yeah, I think some people might hear you talking about this and wonder, you know, so what if there is a future where I can get these measured in, you know, an annual physical what are they going to tell me to do in response, depending on my methylated regions? So would that would that answer be more exercise, eat better, all the stuff that doctors <laughs> typically tell you to do? 
It, it, it would be, right? And one could argue that, well, what's the point? <laughs> and that would be a fair argument, perhaps. I mean, I think we should do all of those things anyway, because we do know that all of the above are, are good for our health, regardless of what they're doing at the molecular level. But I, I think that the, the, the second tier response to that is that in addition to those things, perhaps there are some other complementary treatments that even if you are healthy and exercising or eating just right, that you could add to your routine that would complement um, those behaviors and, and improve your health even further. And as far as the methylation goes, whether we're actually targeting the methylation specifically, I don't know, but whether it's more a reflection of how you're doing in terms of your biological age, your cellular age versus your chronological age, your age in years. Um, I think that's that's where the application is. And, and that I guess that kind of dovetails with something else that we talked about last time, which is that there's a, a whole lot of interest in pharmacological treatments or and, and even supplements that might actually be legitimate anti-aging therapies. And one of the concerns with all of the, those things, though, is should we just be blanket prescribing them or giving them to everybody? And the answer is probably no, because you know, for a whole host of obvious reasons. But perhaps one way to think about the future of, of all of that work is that if we if we had the right biomarkers and analytics for figuring out who does have advanced cellular biological aging and who does not, well, the people who do would be the arguably the better candidates for, for treatment with an anti-aging drug if we can ever find one. I know we also wanted to use this, this area of the significance of this study to talk about some of your concurrent studies that you're doing in your lab. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I know Devin, you said Devin's working on a study for a drug to reduce repetitive elements. So can mm -hmm. you just talk about some of the other things you're working on and how they might connect to this bioaging study? Sure. Yeah. So in addition to the, the bioaging study, which is a, a human research study, we're bringing participants in and studying them. We uh, do a lot of work using a couple of other models, mice and um, cells that we grow in, in dishes and things. And one of the major things that we're focused on or topics that we're focused on in all of that work is, is brain aging and healthy brain aging with the goal of being, you know, delaying declines in cognitive function and delaying things like Alzheimer's disease. And we think, and, and we're not alone, other people have found this too, that this repetitive element activation that happens during aging might be particularly important in the brain. So, you know, I just mentioned inflammation a couple of times uh, in the context of brain aging. One of the major mechanisms of brain aging that's pretty well established is what's called neuroinflammation. So inflammation in neurons and other cells in the brain. And that's, that's pretty well established as something that kind of increases as we age and also plays a major role in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So um, if repetitive elements might be playing a role in inflammation in general. It makes a lot of sense that they might be playing a role in neuroinflammation. And the maybe silver lining to some of all of these things that we've been talking about is that if, if, if it's true, there might actually be ways to pharmacologically target and prevent these processes. 
And so Devin, who's a, a postdoc in the lab, has been doing a really cool study, and he's done some fantastic work that we're getting excited to publish kind of soon, showing that when he gives old mice an antiretroviral drug, and so I'll unpack that term a little bit, but the anti makes sense, the retroviral is referring to uh, the viruses or retroviruses that I mentioned that could be um, the sources of these repetitive elements in the genome. Uh, so again, they've accumulated in the genome over years and years of evolution, and they're our own right now. They, they make up our own genomes, but if they have retroviral origins, then uh, they that would be why we kind of want to suppress them. And so um, it turns out that there are certain classes of drugs, and HIV drugs are actually the, the best example of this, that would be considered antiretroviral drugs and that they inhibit the activity of retroviral-like sequences or retrovirus sequences. Uh, so Devin has been treating, like I said, old mice who we know have increased activity of repetitive sequences in their brains with actually a, a, an FDA-approved HIV drug and finding that that actually is sufficient to reduce the inflammation in their brains and to improve their cognitive function, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's super cool work and a really fascinating connection to all this stuff that we're talking about. And so I want to make sure I ask you this last question, which is a little bit different than the one from the first season. Uh, what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from, you know, the health span biology perspective? I really think that the there's so much great work going on, regardless of our particular interests in the repetitive elements and the omics that are involved there. There's There's so much great work going on looking for biomarkers like that and trying to validate them at the same time as there are these pretty cool trials that people are trying to push forward testing uh, drugs that might be bona fide anti-aging drugs. And I, I think I think we're not too far off from a point at which we might have some really good reproducible biomarkers and some treatments that we could use, just like I described before, to target or improve biological aging and health span in the folks who have demonstrably advanced biological age based on these, these biomarkers of aging. So I think it's just really cool the way um, people are, are, are really pushing those two fronts forward, in many cases separately, but in parallel. And then there are some you know, studies where people are actually doing both and they're doing uh, measuring biomarkers and, and trying um, actually testing some of these drugs that might be candidates for, for therapeutics. Do you see that happening in your lifetime? I do. Yeah? yeah I think so, so we're that close I, to it? I, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I guess I'm an optimist. Um, you have to be in science because, I don't know, 90% of what I do doesn't work or something like that, So, uh, <laughs> which would be a terrible track record if I was a neurosurgeon, right? So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking 10 years out maybe. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's really cool. We'll see. 
We'll see. Yes. We'll see. Are you overly optimistic or just the right amount of optimistic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about this study. This is really fascinating stuff that you're doing and just glad to have you a part of the center and, and here to tell us about it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on again, Hannah. And I'll say if anybody is interested in enrolling in the study, um, they can find us online and it'd be great. We're certainly looking for people and um, you can learn about your biological age if you are interested. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.